Yo, people, It's All Relative is here again to tell you a tale of some horrible people who ruin several other people's lives, many ruined in the name of family. This podcast is a true crime podcast. Listener discretion is seriously advised. And here's Tammy Wynette to set the mood. I'll see you on the flip side. But the words we're hiding from him now Tear the heart right out of me Our D-I-V-O-R-C-E Becomes final today Me and little J-O-E Will be going away The story that follows is about a couple that seemed made for each other. Their story is chronicled by Ron Fancel in Alice and Gerald, A Homicidal Love Story, and much of the information for this pod series comes from that book. Alice was born in 1939 to an unwed teenage mother in Denver. She was adopted out by a couple who lived in an Illinois farm town. Alice herself then got pregnant and married at 16 to a cop. She had four children and then divorced him faster than a quick drama gras segment in 1959. She then married Don Prunty, an alcoholic who moved them out of Illinois to be caretakers of the Red Mount Ranch in Wyoming. Don died abruptly. The death certificate named complications from alcoholism as the cause of death. Francel says that Alice saw nothing in Illinois to go back to, so she and her now five children remained in Wyoming after Prunty's death. Alice was raised in Illinois, and you would think that her mother and father, adoptive or no, may be worth going back to. In these types of situations, loving parents often welcome their children and grandchildren back home. There's no further information about Alice's relationship with her parents or why Alice believed there was nothing there for her and her five children. Are they dead? Irreconcilable differences? Nope, nada. There's also nothing about the relationship with her ex-in-laws. Neither set. Did they not want to see their grandchildren? What or who has alienated Alice from what should be part of her support system? You may, as I have, form a slightly less than educated opinion about this by the time the case is finished. Alice was a nurse, although there is no info about where she got her training. And I kind of would like to know this in light of her young age and five children. I mean, when would she have found the time? Would she have been able to? Not expressly stated, but married at 16 sort of implies she didn't finish high school. So would she have even qualified to enroll in a nursing course? This woman has eerie similarities to Virginia Reardon, and like Reardon, Alice making up her credentials would not be a surprise to me. So she's working at the VA and meets Ron Holtz, a Vietnam vet who had come home from the war with all the horrible things people who are forced to participate in wars are often afflicted. Their marriage, according to Alice, was a turbulent one. Ron disappears and Alice files for divorce. Uncontested, she becomes, yet again, a single woman. So now she pulls her trailer into a trailer park and gets in good with the manager. The manager knows someone who can help Alice hook up her 110 electricity to the park's 220 connection. 
He's a jack-of-all-trades, and he happens to live next door to where her trailer is now parked. Alice is dressed like a dollar store bucko bunny. I kid you not, that is the direct quote from the book. I guess that's better than using the classy $10 whore. It is definitely enough to get the tradesman's, Gerald, that is, interest peaked. Gerald grew up in Nebraska, a town of not even 800 people. He loved the concept of a clan, and no, not a KKK clan, but the concept as used in a Scottish clan. A big extended family with its support and loyalty. Even so, he tried to take off in his car as a teenager to go west and become a cowboy. He had made it to the Rocky Mountains when he realized what a pipe dream it was. His car died on the way back home, and he was forced to call his father, Lloyd Uden, to come get him. Quote, on the long drive home, Lloyd didn't say much, until a chastened Gerald broke the silence. I didn't know, is all he said. His father just stared down at the endless road ahead. Well, next time, he said, his voice frighteningly calm. You best just keep on going. End quote. Oh, the fatherly support. A few months later, still only 17, Gerald's father signed permission for Gerald to join the Navy. While in the Navy, his parents moved to Wyoming, and so, upon discharge, Gerald headed there too. He worked in the taconite mine and spent his spare time hunting and fishing. Gerald met his first wife in the fall of 1965. He was dressing an elk in the alley behind his parents' house. I know, classy, right? When the girl next door, one Barbara Ann Phillips, came to ask him about the elk. Barbara Ann knew as much about guns, hunting, and fishing as Gerald did, and he fell hard. She was soon to be 18, and Gerald had to ask her preacher father for permission to marry her. The father wasn't totally thrilled about the question, but they started their marriage in a small apartment above the J.C. Penney. But the landlady kept coming in when they weren't home to clean the place. Seems she didn't think Barbara Ann was doing a good enough job. The invasion of their space sent Gerald out to buy a trailer, which they parked in his parents' backyard. When they weren't practicing outdoor sports, Gerald had a very polarized idea of marital roles. Barbara Ann ended up in the hospital with some serious side effects from her birth control. But when she was discharged from hospital, only two weeks after she almost died, Gerald expected her to immediately resume her role in cooking, cleaning, and servicing his sexual needs. Still very much in need of recovery time, Barbara Ann figuratively told Jared, Gerald to go fuck himself and filed for divorce. It took him five years of serious trawling for a mate to find another woman who would agree to marry him. Wanda loved sex and motorcycles, and she stuck it out in the marriage for six whole weeks before her hippie spirit told her that Gerald was just not the man for her. Gerald took the time to lay out all his woes to Fran, his landlady, and Fran decided Gerald was too good a man to go to waste. Fran started calling the potential dating pool for a woman who would be perfect for Gerald. Virginia and her two sons, Richard and Regan, were having trouble making ends meet. Virginia had a rifle that once belonged to her grandfather and she was hoping to sell it. Fran, playing matchmaker, sent Virginia to see Gerald about the gun's value. Gerald opened the door when Virginia knocked, and once again he fell hard. The fact she came with children was an added bonus to a man who craved belonging to a family. Gerald proposed about three months after that first meeting. Once married, Virginia started pushing for Gerald to adopt the boys. On its face, the adoption seemed reasonable. Virginia's ex-husband was paying child support consistently, but he had little to no presence in the boys' lives. Richard and Regan had been calling Gerald dad, so making the bond official made sense. 
even if it did mean losing that monthly child support. Closing in on their first anniversary, the family took a road trip out to Pennsylvania to visit Virginia's father and stepmother. A few days of visiting and Virginia told Gerald she was going to see extended family with the boys and Gerald was not invited. She bought him a plane ticket back to Wyoming and took off. The situation was strange and Gerald couldn't figure out what happened. However, he thought she may just need some space and so he gave it to her. As September rolled around and the boys should have been starting school, Virginia and the boys had not returned. He phoned her to find out what was going on and he demanded she come back home. She relented, but once back to Wyoming, Virginia was no longer an amiable wife. The boys, too, seemed distant, and had begun calling him Gerald rather than Dad. The uncomfortable situation lasted about a month when Virginia asked Gerald for a divorce. Gerald was stuck with their debt and was expected to pay twice the child support Virginia was getting from her other ex-husband. And now we come to the point where Gerald meets the Bucko Bunny in the form of his new next-door neighbor, Alice Prunty. Two weeks after his divorce to Virginia was final, Gerald and Alice tied the knot. And to Alice, that knot was definitely tied, and the words no man put asunder was expanded to include previous lovers even attempting to say hi. At that point, Alice was a nurse at the hospital. During the hospital's holiday party, Gerald and Alice were greeted by Barbara Ann. You remember, Gerald's first wife and also a hospital employee. Barbara Ann was happy to meet Alice, and she spent some time catching up with Gerald. After she had moved on to other partygoers, Alice had a fit to rival Yosemite Sam. Barbara Ann had no right to come back into Gerald's life, even if it was just to shake hands. With this attitude, it should come as no surprise that Gerald spending time with Richard and Regan was also a big problem for Alice. Virginia had trouble holding a job and finally moved herself and the boys back out to her people in Pennsylvania. This eased the tension emanating from Alice any and every time anyone even remembered remembering Virginia or the boys. Alice believed exes should never come back. Ever. Any relief, however, was short-lived. Virginia had always had a bit of a short fuse. This was mostly a reaction to her rambunctious children, but when she couldn't make it work in Pennsylvania, or New Jersey as it happens, her anger turned towards Gerald and Alice by default. She bitched about his not being a good father. She complained he wasn't paying enough in child support. And she yelled that Gerald's health insurance was not working like she wanted it to when she took the boys for any kind of medical service. Granted, health insurance pretty much never works like any of us want to, ever, so I feel her pain. But Alice wasn't going to let any of Virginia's griping stand. She took over the responding to Virginia, and here's one of her responses. Quoting from Francel's book, Virginia, Gerald and I enjoyed your letter, as we always do. It appears to me that you have the idea that I try to keep your messages, letters, and phone calls from my husband. We keep no secrets from one another. We have had a lot of laughs at your expense. It's very difficult for either one of us to understand how any human being can be as brainless as you are. If you get the idea that I don't like you, you're very correct. I have no use for any woman that does not have the mind, backbone, or guts to stand on her own two feet and take care of herself and her kids by herself without raping some poor man's pocket. Any woman that can't do that is a worthless piece of garbage. I worked, supported five children, and also had to give my tax money to support leeches like you, who are too lazy to go out and get a good enough job to take care of your own. You are worse than most of your kind. Everyone in the family knows how you hounded Gerald to adopt your kids so he could wind up supporting them. 
since their father wouldn't. You're quite a con artist. Most lazy trash are. Gerald must have really tried to hold his marriage together by adopting your boys, because he doesn't even like kids. He swallowed your line, hook, line, and sinker, and now he pays for it. He was hoping the power plant, Three Mile Island nuclear plant that in crisis was very near Virginia's Pennsylvania apartment, would explode and take you with it. It's really a shame that it didn't. The long, handwritten letter closed with more nastiness from Alice about child support payment that Virginia claimed hadn't arrived. It was unsigned and undated, but on the back, Virginia, intending to document all her correspondence with the Udents, wrote, Alice, Spring, 1979. Virginia's next letter is lost, but judging by Alice's response, it skewered her parenting skills, among other cruelties. End quote. It is at this point that the Udents decided to hit Virginia where it hurts. Her children and her pocketbook. I say the Udens, but I suspect it was Alice and only Gerald by default. He would do anything to make Alice happy. The gist of their attack was to insist on visitation with the boys with the intent of gaining full physical custody and to lessen the child support accordingly. Virginia worried they could make this happen and wrote to a judge to get some answers. The judge, covering his robed ass, told her very little except that the final onus on transportation of the children in a custody agreement usually falls on the non-resident parent. In other words, if Gerald and Alice got their way, she, Virginia, would be the one footing the bill. Virginia decides it's time to go back to Wyoming. This posed a problem for Alice. It was one thing to make contact with Gerald's ex-family by phone or letter. There is a distance maintained with these methods. Remember, she believes exes should stay gone, and this extends to ex-children as well. Granted, it does seem that Alice tries to make some kind of effort with Richard and Regan. Whether this is because Gerald has affection for them, because they are children who really can't be held accountable for their parents' flaws, or for some other reason, we will probably never know. But Virginia is now in Alice's face. What to do, what to do. The first way she handles it is very adult. When the Udens go to pick up Richard and Regan for visitation, Alice does an ostrich impression and scrunches down in her seat. She could have just stayed home. Nope, she has to make the short journey from the Uden home to that of Claire Martin, Virginia's mother, and extremely lenient landlady. But heaven forbid that she make eye contact with Gerald's ex-wife, let alone exchange actual words. Francelle has done a good job in recounting the story. However, there is still so much missing about thought processes and motives, like why did Alice allow the boys to visit when she expressed nothing but vitriol for any former family members invading one's current life? Again, she could have been making an effort trying to be nice. I suspect she may have considered allowing Rich and Regan to be a part of her family, possibly in deference to Gerald. Also, remember she had kids at home who also met these boys, and Alice's youngest quickly came to think of them as her brothers. And Alice doted on her youngest. I was the baby. I was a very spoiled baby. My mother supported me. My mom was an awesome mom. She loved music. Saturdays was house cleaning day. She'd put Tammy Wynette and Tanya Tucker playing on the record player. That was Erica Hayes, Alice's youngest. And that clip came from Oxygen's Killer Couples, Season 15, Episode 10. I say all this because the first few months, these visits seemed to go as any normal visitation. But at one point, 
things changed. The boys told their grandmother, Claire, that they had been locked in a rusty travel trailer for the night and had slept on a dirty mattress on the floor. And for the event of the weekend, they had driven to a local man-made lake. Gerald had taken them out to the middle of the water, told them to strip to their skivvies and swim. When the freezing boys made it back to the boat, Gerald refused to let them in. He motored the boat further away and told them once again to swim. When they started screaming for help, Alice ordered Gerald to stop the exercise and pull the boys out of the water. Francel says Alice caved and ordered Gerald to rescue them. Gerald did have a maybe misguided desire to toughen the boys up, and this could have been his way of trying to do that. Richard, in particular, had health problems that were not clarified, but did put him in and out of hospitals and doctor's offices. Alice, in this instance, may really have been showing pity. I do wonder, though, if Alice had used this as a kind of test. She was extremely set on a person being self-sufficient, self-reliant. If the boys were to pass this test, they would be an acceptable addition to her family. Not passing put the boys in the position of being other, as in other than worth Alice's time and concretely other than Alice's family. It is not clear when the boys spent the night in the trailer, but if it happened after the incident in the lake, that would explain the change in how they were treated going forward. All in all, the whole experience took just a few months. Virginia moved back to Wyoming in the summer, and it was September 11, 1980, when Gerald calls to arrange to take Richard and Regan bird hunting the next day. He also tells Virginia that he has a trailer she can borrow. She's been wanting to go back to Jersey to pick up bulk of her things. She'd left them in Jersey in the rush to get back to Wyoming. Gerald says she can come along and take a look at it while he's hunting with the boys. She can bring her twenty-two rifle for the boys to use. Both Virginia and her mother are a bit suspicious about the trailer loan. Gerald had never been free with his belongings, but mother and daughter don't think much more about it. They agree to meet at an intersection about one half mile from the Uden's land, because Alice, ever the adult, refused to let Virginia step foot on their property. The next day, September 12th, Virginia borrows Claire's station wagon, and she and the boys leave to meet Gerald, and they never come home. Claire is worried and calls Gerald. He says that Virginia never showed, but he volunteers to help Claire look, and he insists on coming to pick her up so they can look for Virginia and the boys together. Claire had been waiting with her friend Marie, first for Virginia to come home and then for Gerald to show up. Marie, who never liked Gerald in the first place, insists that Gerald had done something to Claire's missing family. But Claire brushed it off, just as people would do. I mean, who, except crazy true crime geeks, believes that bad things will actually happen to them? Gerald takes more time than normal to show up at Claire's. Tired of waiting, Claire and Marie head out without him. But they had only driven a few yards when they passed Gerald, finally making his way. He parked and then hopped in the front seat of Marie's car, with Marie driving and Claire in the back seat. The women asked him again about Virginia and the boys, and again he said they had never shown. Marie thinks Gerald is acting nervous, and she is sure he will wear a hole in his jeans where his hand is almost continuously rubbing his knee. They check the drive-in and regular theaters. They check the hospital, the stores, and restaurants. No Virginia, no Richard or Regan, and no sign of Claire's station wagon. They end up back at Claire's, and a very worried Claire has decided it's time to go to the sheriff. Gerald takes this as his cue to leave. Unfortunately, it is after midnight, and the sheriff's office is closed. Marie also heads home, and Claire is left to the silence until morning. 
Dawn did come, and Marie was back to help Claire search. Quote, Back in town by mid-morning, they went to the sheriff's office. A young deputy asked perfunctory missing persons questions. Virginia was an unemployed white female, 32, 5'6", 170, blue-green eyes, brown hair, medium complexion, a blood clot in her left eye, and upper and lower dentures. The car was a 1973 Ford station wagon, brown. The deputy dutifully filled out his form, adding under additional information that Virginia and her two sons were last seen going hunting with ex-husband Gerald Uden at a twenty-two rifle in the car. He checked his watch and wrote 9-13-1980 and 11-23 next to his signature and told Claire to be patient. I'll just hold on to this until tomorrow, the deputy said. Then I'll come over and we'll go over it. Well, that does me a lot of good, Claire fumed. You're not going to search or anything? You're not going to help us search? No, he replied, as if a distraught grandmother who'd been up all night wasn't a big deal. Instead of searching for your family, we'll first try to find the car. Claire was confused. Don't the people in the car matter? This is the way we do it, he tried to assure her. They'll probably be in the car. Not necessarily. You don't know what happened to them at this point. You have no idea. You don't know what happened to the car. You could find the car empty somewhere, and then where are you? My family is still missing. It went like that for a while, but the deputy wasn't budging. Claire persisted. She suggested places to search for the car, but the deputy didn't seem interested. We'll just have to wait until we find the car. They can't look for the car until they find it. It was real-life Abbott and Costello routine, Claire thought. Why don't you start out at Sandraw, she suggested. Virginia and Gerald used to take the kids looking for rocks. The kids used to love it. Why don't you look out there? What she didn't mention was the possibility of suicide. Maybe Virginia got in an argle-bargle with Alice and couldn't handle it. Maybe this was her final exit. Maybe she killed herself and the boys with the twenty-two rifle. Maybe she's out there right now, dead. Look, ma'am, the deputy said. We have it covered. We'll look everywhere. How about Dickinson Park Road, she persisted further. Why would we search way up there? We used to go up there and picnic a lot, she said. We didn't know there was a road up that mountain until Gerald showed us. He used to take us up there on picnic, take the boys through the woods, fishing and all that. I don't know, maybe Gerald and Virginia got to talking or something, and he took them up there. Or maybe she decided to kill herself and the kids, and you'll find the car parked up there with all three of them in it. Who knows? Claire was descending into her own internal darkness, but she was done trying to convince Fremont County that something was wrong. Claire was on her own. I can't sit here waiting for you guys to find that car that could be out of state or anywhere, she said as she stormed out of the sheriff's office, frustrated to continue her own search. She went home and put together some posters with Virginia and the boys' pictures, which she copied at the drugstore. She hung them in every bar, shop, and gas station that had let her, tacked them to power poles and fences, and gave them to cops. She wanted every set of eyes in town looking. A few days later, a deputy stopped by the Uden place. They weren't home, but he wandered around. Nothing looked unusual except for fr some fresh concrete in the wellhouse. The deputy didn't make a report, and nothing further was done. Unknown to Claire, four days after Virginia and the boys went missing, a deputy added a note to the missing person report at the Fremont County Sheriff's Office. A Mrs. Hart had called to say that Virginia had given her a $50 deposit to rent a mobile home and mentioned that she was going back to New Jersey for her belongings. She expected to be back by mid-month. To the local cops, the whole disappearance appeared to be a tempest in an overly dramatic grandmother's teapot. End quote. 
You guys have heard my rant about how missing persons are dealt with in this country. I am holding back on going full-blown belligerent. On September 20th, Claire receives a mailgram, which is Western Union's version of a telegram. It had been sent from Illinois from a V.U. Martin, a.k.a. Virginia Uden Martin, and addressed to C. Martin, C. for Claire. The mailgram said, quote, Mom, sorry I've worried you. I am in trouble. The boys are okay. Cover for me. Say I'm in California. We'll write when possible. End quote. Claire is perplexed. There was maybe $5 worth of gas in the car. How could Virginia have made it to Illinois, especially since her $1,000 stash was still at Claire's house? And the mailgram was not written like Virginia usually writes, even if she were trying to be brief. Not to mention, Virginia wouldn't have addressed it to C. Martin or used V.U. Martin to refer to herself. She always signed everything Jin, maybe Ginny. Claire sends a reply to the sender's address, begging for a response that she never gets. What she does get is Gerald banging on her door the next day, complaining that she doesn't answer her phone. He then proceeds to go directly to the phone junction under her trailer and pulls out the wires and announces that they had been cut. Gerald then proceeds to fix the wires while telling Claire all about his own worry and solo search for Virginia and the boys. Later that night, a neighbor called the police on a scruffy man in a pickup near Claire's place of business watching somebody or something with binoculars. A patrol officer pulled up and discovered it was Gerald and gave him a ticket for carrying a homemade sap, which is like a really thick and short whip. Police used to carry them standard. They hurt like hell. And if you use them like a bludgeon, saps can be deadly. Gerald went to court and paid that fine, but no one told Claire that Gerald had been creepily sitting outside her laundromat with a homemade weapon at dark 30 at night. Two days later, another letter arrived for Claire. This one seemed to have been sent locally with no return address. Quote, Mom, I hope I haven't worried you too much. I am in trouble. It's best you don't know about it. I had to leave in a hurry. There wasn't time to tell you. Last Wednesday, I stopped at a drugstore in Illinois long enough to buy some things. I gave one of the clerks some money to send you a message. Hope you got it. I couldn't take time to do it myself. We're with friends in Penn. In pen. Now, you don't know them. I think we'll be all right for a while. I have money for now. That's why I'm in trouble. I'm sending this in a way that can't give away my location. They may be watching you. It's safer for you if you don't know exactly where we are right now. If anyone asks, tell them we're in California. I need to figure out how to get our things and money from our house in New Jersey and how to get support money. When I do, I'll let you know. We're safe for now, but have to keep going. We'll be in touch when possible. It's important we don't attract attention, so we'll have to be careful. I'm counting on you to cover for me. Take good care of Freddie and George. The kids miss them and you, Virginia. Again, Claire immediately responded with a mailgram to the Corolla address. How can I help? Urgent you call home or laundry, Mom. And Claire owns a laundromat. Without waiting for a reply, Claire took the mailgram and led her down to the sheriff's office. Captain Larry Matthews, head of the sheriff's investigative dis division, read it and smiled. There you go, he said. All you're worrying for nothing. She'll be in touch with you when she gets the chance. Claire shook her head. No, something's not right. Is that her signature? The investigator asked. She never signs anything to me with her full name. Jin or Ginny. Maybe. Not that. Matthews was unsold. He knew that anxious families imagined the worst before their missing loved ones walked back in perfectly alive. And they almost always walked back in. 
Well, I don't know about that, he said. That's her signature, right? Claire was flustered. She admitted it was Virginia's signature and promptly left. Later that day, Claire received a phone call from a Joyce Johnson in Illinois, who told her that Virginia had borrowed enough money from her to get to New Jersey and made her promise to call Claire and the cops to settle her, their fears. Nothing to worry about. She and her sons were all safe. So Matthews added a page to the missing report, explaining that Virginia Uden and her boys had been located alive and well in Illinois. He scrawled a big 1066 across the front. Report canceled. Officially, less than two weeks after their disappearance, nobody in law enforcement was looking for Virginia, Richard, and Regan Uden anymore. Case closed. End quote. Oh my fucking God. Did you, Matthews, yourself lay eyes on and speak to Virginia? Did you verify that this Joyce Johnson existed? Her bona fides checked out? You lazy fucker. Resume quote. A couple days later, September 25th, another letter arrived, not from Virginia, but from the Corolla address in Illinois. It bore no postmark. It was handwritten and dated September 24th, but not signed. It contained the two urgent mailgrams Claire had sent to Virginia. Enclosed are two telegrams that have been sent to my address. There is no one by the name of V.U. Martin at this address. A lady came in the place where I work and asked if I would send this telegram for her. She gave me some money and a message and left. That was my only contact. I would appreciate no further messages be sent to this address. It is very annoying. Thank you. Now more than ever, Claire believed the telegram and letters were part of a cruel hoax. Even if Virginia was alive and safe, she had no part in this correspondence. Claire was sure. She gathered it all and went to the sheriff's office again. She gave them all to the detective. She made a passionate case that it was possible they weren't from her missing daughter. Too many things didn't feel right. All he had to do was have somebody knock on the door at the Corolla Street address and ask a few questions. Could he please do that? The detective relented. He confidently dealt with some of the worst liars, shitheads, and creeps society had to offer, but a stubborn grandma had worn him down. That afternoon, he called the Krevker Police Department, which was smaller than Riverton's. He told them he was working on a missing persons case and asked if they could check out 556 Corolla. Maybe get the owner's name and number for him? The house was vacant, but it wasn't hard to find the last tenant, a 20-something woman called Thea Thomas. As a professional courtesy two weeks later, two agents from Illinois' Division of Criminal Investigation knocked on the door at Thea Thomas's new apartment in Peoria Heights. They had a few questions. Did she know V.U. Martin? No. Did she send a mailgram to Claire Martin? Yes. Why did she send it? Because her mother had called and asked her to do it. Did she say why? Because she had a friend in trouble and she needed to get a message to her mother in the form of a telegram. Did her mother tell her exactly what to say? Yes. Did she sign it, V.U. Martin? Yes. Did she know that V.U. Martin and Virginia Uden were the same person? And she was a missing person. Not at the time. She did now. What happened next? She received two telegrams from Claire Martin. What did she do with them? She called her mother. What did her mother tell her to do? Send the telegrams to her mom with an unsigned note telling Claire to stop sending them. She'd take care of it. What happened next? She learned the story of Virginia and her boy's disappearance. She was shocked. What did she do next? She called her mom, enraged that she'd been dragged into some weird sham thing about missing people she'd never met. 
her mom promised to visit the sheriff and straighten this misunderstanding out. And what was her mother's name? Alice Uden. End quote. And there I will have to leave you on a cliffhanger because we've run out of time for today. If you like what you've heard, please like, rate, and review. Here's Jefferson Airplane to see you on your way. And I will talk to you next time on It's All Relative. <laughs>